And we'll now turn our attention to the reading and the preaching of God's Word. We're continuing a sermon series looking at the church, and I'd like to invite Pamela to read our scripture passage for today. Our reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-17. to 17. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love your brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Hello everyone, this is uh, Dan McDonald from Grace Toronto Church. I am uh, looking forward to talking to you a little bit about the beautiful things in this passage. But first I want to take a quick moment and say this about reopening. I, I know we've got a spike in cases and many of you are asking, are we going to stop? Are we going to defer opening? And the answer is maybe. Our primary motivations are love of God, love of our city, love of our neighbors and love of each other. That's what motivates us. And if the spike in COVID cases and the medical dangers that are are around COVID make it such that love of city, neighbor, each other, and God compel us to defer opening, we will. We're in constant daily sifting and communication about those issues. Stay tuned. We're monitoring it carefully. We're getting all the protocols ready to reopen. We're not stopping all the preparation but we are willing to suspend the opening time until such time as love of God, neighbor, city, and each other is maximized with the idea of reopening, okay? So be reassured. Okay, let's get to our our text today because we've been talking about the glory of the church and so far we've heard that the, the church is Christ's glorious body. We've heard that the church is Christ's glorious temple. We've heard the church is Christ's glorious bride this week. We are Christ's glorious exiles. I remember still very vividly, as a brand new Christian, I think I was still in university, so I was only a Christian a couple of years, maybe at the most, when I heard the sitting American president at the time refer to his nation as a city on a hill. And that confused me. It inspired me and then confused me because I thought, wait a minute, I think I've heard those words before, but I think they're in the Bible. So I went and I looked in the Bible and I found it. And here's what it says and what it refers to. Because it's found in Matthew 5, and it's Jesus saying this, You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He wasn't saying it about a place, about a nation. He was saying it about a people. Christ's people are the city on a hill. He goes on to say, Jesus does, 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Very similar language to what Peter brings in here. Very parallel kind of passage. City on a hill, light of the world, is about God's people, not about any place. That day, I got confused. And I entered the confusion that existed then and exists now between the place of the church in any particular culture it inhabits, the role of Christianity and the culture around it. We see that confusion reigning today. We see it in in the conversations we're having uh, about race. What do we do? How do we conduct these conversations? How do evangelical Christians discuss this well? How are we doing in terms of race? We see this with respect to COVID and the division in the church is about should we listen to the restrictions that the governments are having or should we stake our claim on our religious freedom? These are the issues that are still here because we're still struggling with this issue. And we probably always will. But here Peter gives us a pathway forward, some real profound wisdom with, two, with one simple truth and a number of profoundly practical applications. And the simple and profound truth is this, that there's a duality in our identity. We are at the same time a royal nation, God's holy people, his priests, his bride, and with respect to our culture and our world, we are exiles, strangers, and aliens. With respect to him, we are exalted. We have this great influence. We have this great glorious access and treasured position. With respect to our culture, we are rejected and despised and marginalized. And this dual identity, Peter argues, is at the center of what it means to proclaim His Excellencies. You must embrace both. Okay, let's look at that. Let's embrace the duality of our identity, and then let's figure out how to apply it. Those are the two. Okay, verses 9 to 12, Peter lays it out. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I said a couple weeks ago, these are some of the most exalted rhetorical words in all of spiritual literature. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want to stop there and I want to look at this glorious identity and some of the implications we did not tease out a couple weeks ago. When you look at the glory of this identity, it's, it's magnificent. Royalty, priesthood, intimate access with God, able to intercede with God for the nations. But, listen to that last part, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The word darkness there is not ignorance, it's not lack of education. It's moral, ethical, and spiritual darkness. It's the darkness that the gospel says comes when you live your life independent from God, defiant of God, rebelling against God, and not wanting God to guide you. And I submit to you, that's where many, many, many of us in our culture are. When we live for our own desires, our own power, or our own pleasure, there is a moral darkness in us. And so now let's look at this for a minute. Christians, if we're to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus... We must proclaim how he has taken us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We must admit that we were in moral and ethical darkness, alienated from him. We must come to Jesus for forgiveness. 
And we must tell others that they must come to Jesus for forgiveness because they are alienated from a holy God. That is what this means. We have to proclaim it. Now, if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, if you're skeptical about Christianity, we are glad that you are here, but we are bound by Jesus to tell you this. The way you are living, no matter how progressive you are, no matter how morally informed you are, no matter how culturally sophisticated you are, environmentally and socially responsible you are, if you're living without God as the center of your life, without giving God the guiding place in your life, you're in darkness still. You're in defiance to Him. And so is everyone else who doesn't know Jesus. You see, this is how being God's light and being God's exile start to come together. The whole world is fundamentally oriented to, to, to work its way without guidance from God. Our whole culture is based on secularism. It's based on all of our parameters, all of our values being oriented around a life without God. So if, if you're here and you notice that Christianity has this exclusiveness about it, you're partly right, but I think you've actually got it wrong way around. Many times I hear skeptics say, you Christians are exclusive. No, we're excluded. If the gospel is true and the world is shrouded in darkness, the darkness of the kind I've described, this moral and ethical darkness of living life independent of God, being ruled by the principles of sin and selfishness, then people who become a follower of Jesus and come out of that, come out of the reigning majority place. Christians who come to this light become an excluded minority who flow against the current of the culture. They followed a rejected Savior into this light because the love of God is there. Forgiveness and mercy and grace is there and they want that. But they come to a place of being marginalized by a culture that doesn't want that. And so if you're here and you're skeptical or you've always wondered why Christians seem a bit exclusive, let me put the shoe on the other foot. We are a marginalized group just by the nature of what it means to be a Christian. A group of people who follow a rejected and despised Savior who nevertheless died for those who rejected Him is a group of people who's distinctly in the minority. And everyone who follows Jesus follows Him to the outside of the culture that they inhabit. This is why Peter, immediately after telling you of the glories of who you are in Christ a royal priesthood, a holy nation, immediately says, but you are also this to your culture. You may be this to God, this exalted thing, but to your culture, you are now on the margins. You're sojourners, you're aliens, and you're exiles. I knew of people who owned a home. They wanted to buy a retirement property in cottage country, so they sold their home to someone who would let them stay there and rent it out. And they used the money to buy their dream retirement home slash cottage lake house. One day they were owners of the home. The next day, they were renters in that same home. It seemed exactly the same, just like their home, but it was no longer theirs. And over time, it became increasingly clear. The decisions about painting and renovating and landscaping, who to, let, who to rent the basement out to, were no longer theirs. 
They began to see it differently. They began to care for that home differently. It wasn't theirs. They didn't have to carry the weight and pour in the love of renovating and fixing up. They didn't have the the authority to customize it to their changing desires and likes. It was where they lived, but it was no longer their home. This is what the Gospel says happens to those who come and follow Jesus. The world we inhabit is where we live. But suddenly, after you've become a follower of Jesus, the world is is still the same place. But you're now no longer finding at home. When you become a Christian, you enter a new way of living and loving and being and desiring. And the world you inhabit isn't there. You become a new person, part of a new people. You've bought a new home. It's actually being built for you by the author and perfecter of your faith, Jesus. And it will be waiting for you. But this place we call home begins to feel like a rented place. It's no longer home. Now here's the key. That place of feeling unhomed can be tremendously dislocating. But the true power of being a city on a hill, the true power of proclaiming His excellencies is feeling unhomed. It's feeling like an exile. Because we cannot actually properly proclaim the excellencies of Jesus well to this world without first feeling like aliens in this world. If you are too attached to the culture that you are trying to point to Jesus, you'll be afraid of offending it because you like your place in it. If you enjoy the respect of the culture too much, if you enjoy the privileges and perks the culture gives you, you will not have the ability to resist its temptations, much less proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to it. It's only in feeling alienated and dislocated from a culture that you get the distance from it and the freedom from it to be able to speak to it. I know in in the culture today, I personally and many of us listening feel the allure of trying to be culturally sophisticated, to be current, to know exactly what to say about the current issues of our time. I I remember I'm reading White Fragility. I'm a little late to the table, but I'm reading White Fragility. Remember when it was all the rage? Oh, that's, that's so two months ago, right? Maybe three months ago. I remember partway through reading it, someone told me, stop reading it. It's already been debunked and critiqued. It's already in the dustbin of the conversation on race. I wasn't even finished with the book. How do I keep up? But you see, my desire to be seen as culturally sophisticated is actually a constraint on my ability to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. Being culturally sophisticated is not wrong. That's one thing. But the need, the desire, the hunger to be seen that way, which calls out to me every day, does not free me to tell people that Jesus is the better way. It captures me. And I have to repent of that. The Gospel says, do not love the world or the things of the world. That's what the Apostle John said in 1 John 2.15. The Gospel says, if I'm still trying to please people, I will not be a servant of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said that in Galatians 1, verse 10. 
when we realize that all of these precious truths to us, our new identity as a holy nation and royal priesthood and, and God's people, this truth about how God sees us is combined with this truth about how we are positioned with the culture. It actually focuses us and frees us to be able to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to a culture that we don't need anything from. That combination of being exalted in God's eyes and exiled in the culture's eyes, that paradoxical position of exaltation and exhalation, I don't know what the word is, exile, that combination is where the power of proclamation comes. Now Peter says, secondly, live it out. Live it out. He gives us three ways to live it out. Firstly, be holy. Secondly, be public. And thirdly, be submissive. Firstly, be holy. He says, Behold, beloved, I I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, let me clear away the the question about what this means, about day of visitation, and then let's get into the nitty-gritty. Day of visitation probably means... The, the majority of, of, of commentators and New Testament scholars think that's the day when God visits us. He comes back, as it were, to wind up all of history. So on that day, people who are right now, who are right now not Christians, become Christians. They glorify God on that day because of what you have done in your deeds and your proclamation. That's what he's saying here. Okay? So now let's look at what he says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable and abstain from the passions of the flesh. I'm going to take those two ideas and say that can be compressed into a word, be holy. But now, the average Christian who hears the word be holy, and most non-Christians who hear the word be holy think, oh, some some miserable, nervous, fear-ridden religious person who looks at Santa and says, that's just Satan. Uh, That's the kind of person I don't want to be. Shrunken, fearful, trying to avoid everything that may not be moral or spiritual. That's not what holy means. To be holy means to be so morally beautiful as to stand out from the rest of your surroundings, your culture, to be set apart by God and to be so morally beautiful that it's obvious that you have been influenced, empowered, guided, suffused with the power of God. Set apart and so beautiful that you stand out. That's what it means to be holy. What if the church looked like that right now in our culture? What if the way that these polarizing discussions about politics and the government, COVID, and racism were done in such a radically different, more beautiful way. What if kindness and gentleness and listening characterized the way Christians talk about this? What if in in, in the area of race, Christians stop asking, are you hashtag BLM capital or hashtag BLM non-capital? Are you hashtag all lives matter? Where are you? Before they even started talking. That's what our culture is doing. 
What if we said, we don't want to talk about it that way. I just want to listen. But let's start with this presupposition. The Bible says we're all created in the image of God. And we're to love each other as equals in the image of God. Let's take that biblical standard. Let's not give it cultural names that make us polarize and divide. But let's say, let's take that standard and let's examine our own thinking, feeling, desiring, and conduct on that standard. And let's have honest conversations about where our hearts are at. That would be holy. That would be wholly different from what's going on in our culture. And it would be so beautiful. What a different way to have that conversation. What if we had that kind of conversation about COVID, about politics, about all these polarizing things? And we just said, we're going to be a a people who conduct conversations looking at each other and saying, that person is God's beloved child. And they are incomplete. I may have something to give to that person but I probably have something to receive from that person because I'm incomplete. What if that was the way we ordered ourselves? Beautiful. We'd be holy. What if in this time of being so concerned about money and finances and people hoarding, Christians were known as the ones that were out there supporting businesses, upholding restaurants, I just heard of a couple of people, what a beautiful thing, uh, helping uh, a Korea town, Korean restaurant that they love. They're just freely giving a few off hours that they have as waiters and waitresses just so it doesn't have to pay for them and can, can stay open. What if we did that kind of thing as a church? What if we were known corporately as that kind of people? We would be holy. People would say, they're set apart by God. Well, they might not say those words, but they'd see our good deeds and go, there's something there that's different. Be holy. Be holy corporately as a group, the way we treat each other. Be holy individually. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. And I know in our mind, we tend to go to to the obvious ones. Uh, We're a very sexualized culture. Lust is one where we should go. We're a very angry culture. Anger is one where we should automatically go. We should think about how the gospel gives us the power not to be angry and not to lust all the time. We can hold each other accountable for those things. I've, I've had those two particular ones bedevil me, as it were, for years. So thankful I'm getting freedom over them in real ways. But it's also in hidden, more respectable ways that this holiness comes out. Be holy in the way you parent. Be willing to love unconditionally. Be willing to let your child sometimes disrespect you while teaching them to respect you. I I had a hard time with that when I began parenting. I still fight that. Be willing to have your fondest desire and dream as a parent. Not that your child goes to an Ivy League school and becomes a very successful person but that your child graduates from the school of Christ as a deeply devoted follower. I remember I was at Princeton University uh, at at a conference, and we were just, uh, we were roomed there. It was just, it was a summertime, and they were off campus, so they had cheap rooms. We we roomed there, and we, we, we had a conference there. And I walked the campus on some off hours, and I went, oh my word, this is the, like literally the most beautiful campus I've seen outside of maybe Cambridge in London. Actually, maybe more beautiful. I said, called my wife and said, I want my daughter to go here. 
She said, Dan, I want my daughter to fall in love with Jesus. Everything else is secondary. Boom. You see, that hidden desire in my heart for my daughter to be successful, to be prestigious, had slipped in and needed to be weeded out. Parents, what's your fundamental, deepest, actual desire for your kids? Be holy in all we do. Be holy in the particular way that we conduct ourselves. Single men, what are you watching? If I saw it, what would I think? God's seeing it every day. What does he think? Single women, what are you watching? Married men, married women, what are we watching? We're not trying to be legalistic. But we are willing to examine ourselves to say, we are called to be holy, to abstain from the passions of our flesh. That may not, by the way, be something that's R-rated. I remember I had to stop watching um, property shows, renovation shows, because I was starting to get such a desire to upgrade our home because I was watching it so much that the, the desire for a big home with a massive kitchen just started to feed into me. Holiness. Desiring God above all things. That's what we're called to do. Guard your conduct. Examine your actions. Be holy. Secondly, be public. It says, be public. He says, proclaim the excellencies and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. There is a public face to our faith. If you're here and you're a skeptic, you're probably partly interested because there's been some consistency and integrity of life of the people who call themselves Christians, and they've made you curious what's going on. That was my story. It's the story of almost every single person I know who's become a Christian as an adult. The power of public witness cannot be underestimated. So, Christians... Look at the way you live your life publicly, the way you neighbor, the way you conduct yourself at work, the relationships you have. Keep that honorable, where it gives honor to Jesus by the way you do it. And skeptics, if we're not doing that, if you're here and you're seeing a disconnect, you tell us about that. We need to hear that. But let's also remember it's not just about Deeds. It's about public proclamation, proclaiming God's excellencies. If you don't know how to bear witness about your faith and what Christ has done, ask your small group leader. Call one of your pastors. We will help you learn to bear public witness, to tell people about the difference Jesus has made. I'm not saying that you like you got to go and, and give people the gospel and, and, and see if you can press them into a decision. I'm asking you to bear witness to publicly proclaim the excellencies of God. Throw a little nugget of what God's done in your life to your co-workers and see how they respond. Have conversations with people about what really makes them tick and how Christ has changed you and freed you and see how they respond. 
be holy, be public, and finally, be submissive. It says here, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. There's that alien combined with royal priesthood. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Here's the freedom. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. See the tension in those that's not really a tension when you realize your royal identity to God and yet your exiled identity to your culture because you're free. So now let's look at this. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. What is being said here is as part of your witness and proclaiming of the excellencies is how you relate to the governing institutions of the place you inhabit. So for for our situation, it would be Toronto, Ontario, and Canada. How are we relating? And the answer is, in the same way that the gospel says that spouses, that wives can be persuading their husbands of the glory of the gospel by their conduct, we can be persuading the city and the nation of the power of the gospel by our willingness to give up some of our rights. Not permanently. I'm not saying we should damage our society by allowing them to oppress us. I'm a civil rights guy. Don't worry about that. But in a situation like this, by being willing to be subject because of love of neighbor, love of God, love of each other, and love of city, subject to the reigning institutions and seeing them as put here by God. I need to ask you, okay? Those of you of a politically conservative mindset, is Justin Trudeau God's sovereign choice as our national leader? Yes, he is. I need to ask those of you of a progressive political disposition, is Mr. Ford God's choice as our premier? Yes, he is. I don't know what to categorize John Tory because I'm not really sure enough. Uh, He seems to be pretty in the middle there, but you get my point. God has sovereignly raised up Mr. Tory, Mr. Trudeau, even Mr. Ford as our leaders, for our good. We can learn to submit to them. Now, there are exceptions. Paul said, if you tell me to stop preaching the gospel, sorry, I'm not listening to you. If you tell me to stop bearing witness for the gospel, sorry, I'm not listening to you. When Paul's civil rights were being challenged, because he was preaching the gospel, he said, I appeal to Rome as a Roman citizen. I'm not saying there isn't a place to push back against the government, but to push back legally and properly, yes. What I am saying is this attitude of saying God is sovereign and he has given them to us. And that government restrictions on us have no ability to inhibit the power of the gospel of coursing through us 
to the people around us. If we understand that we are God's chosen and beloved royal priests and holy nation, and yet by God's sovereign appointment, His exiled people. Where do we get the power to live out these two identities? God's chosen prince. God's royal priest. Himself, Jesus Christ. Beloved of God, with a status before God that none of us will ever attain as the only begotten Son, as God the Son, as equal in God, as the image of God Himself, coming down into human form, and as a human, becoming a rejected, despised man of sorrows and exiled to his own people. He was despised and rejected of men. And he embraced that. For the Son of Man came not to serve but be served and give his life as a ransom for many. Are you willing, with the power of God's Holy Spirit, and the encouragement of God's people to live like Jesus, despised and rejected by the culture, but beloved, exalted before God. If you are, you will be given the freedom to be a distinctively different community. May I say, and we'll talk about this next week, a new city in the heart of this city. That's what we're called to be. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. Help us to live this out because Jesus is in us through his spirit. He was the Holy One who spent his life being public in his word and his deeds about the proclamation of the excellencies of God, but he submitted even to death, death on a cross by the human authorities because he knew they had been placed there by you Because your sovereign plan was to redeem millions upon billions of people by that death. For by his stripes we are healed. I pray that we would enter into that in Christ's name. Amen.